Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello. So how are you? I'm excited to talk to you. Oh, good. I have uh, an election pledge for you to print on your little pledge card. Now, why do I feel a certain reticence about this? No, this is a good one. This is the one that's going to get you over the line. Yeah. Ready? Yeah. An election pledge to standardise which side the bagging area should be on. The bagging area is a big issue. Yes, I agree. Is it not always on one side? I think it's often on the left, which to me feels counterintuitive because it it feels natural to be passing something from right to left. Sorry if you're a left-hander. Yeah, it's problematic. What are your issues with the bagging area? It's always that dilemma, isn't it? Do you go self-service, self-checkout, or do you go human contact? You probably assume you always want to go self, do you? Yes, yes. I, I always want to avoid the human contact where possible. But I also want to feel comfortable that the machines haven't taken people's jobs and they've been redeployed elsewhere with more purposeful and uh, better rewarded work, of course. But yes, I, I would rather avoid the human contact. So you do feel a little bit guilty, but... You think it doesn't really make any difference, so you just use the machine anyway. Exactly. My problem isn't mechanical looms, it's what happens to the Luddites next. As in, do the, as their alternative employment? Yes. Yeah. I want their, their life to get better, not worse. Anyway, uh, anyway, anyway this is, but then you can't also use the machine, that's the problem. Well, well, this is the thing, I go out of my way to avoid the human contact, and then I would say, eight times out of ten, the, the flashing light comes on and somebody has to come over with a key and a code anyway. And it's also quite embarrassing, isn't when it? When you're the person who has to get the special help off the teacher. Special assistance required. Yes. Unexpected item in the bagging area. Yes, yeah. Do you think it's a vote winner? I don't think we're the only ones. I don't quite know whether it's the most pressing problem the country faces. I don't mean to kind of piss on your chips, but... No, but, but like, here's what you've got to do. You've got to get it in there in the mix. Because you're going to go for the big ones. You're going to say something about climate and energy, the most pressing issue. Yeah. You're going to tick the boxes by, by dealing with the economy, NHS, education. But... Throw the bagging area in the mix and, and people will think, 
Oh, they, they really understand modern life. What, what life is like okay. outside of the Westminster bubble. I'll pass it on. <laughs> okay, I'll check in with you next week uh, as to who you've passed it on to. I think it might take a bit longer than that to go through our policy process. Two, two weeks. You might be a bit late, actually, for the policy processes because uh, we've got the National Policy Forum coming up in a couple of weeks. And Oh, it sounds like th- I'm just in time then. No, I think you might have had to have submitted an amendment by now. I'm sorry, Jeff. No, li- oh, listen, it's listen. such a great idea. Listen, but you, you're going to be nimble. Mind. You're going to be nimble. Yeah, I just, I just like, thanks so much. <laughs> honestly, if it had come a bit earlier, it would have, it would have been, it would have been absolutely. Po- I mean, I just find finding no, saying no quite difficult. All right, well, I'm taking that policy to Change UK then. Okay, see what they do with it. So, how is the new podcast? It's going well. We had Charlie Brooker and Bisha mm. Ali from Black Mirror on as our first guests. Excellent. How do you compare your co-hosts? You've got. Me, your wife, Annabelle Port on a drift. I would say that Annabelle is the, the best one at returning my texts and calls, followed by Sarah, and then you're, you're in a close third. <laughs> Didn't used to be like that in the beginning. You'd be calling me at midnight for a little chat. No, I think I was as used. I was useless then too. I just. I think that is. <laughs> I think you've just got used rose-tinted spectacle. Speaking of Annabelle, yeah. Um, can I can I run a couple of things by you? Because she told me some things about her partner, and I wanted to know if you think they're red flags or not. Yeah. So so they're all in the sphere of toothbrushing. Yeah. So first thing, he uses when he brushes his teeth two different types of toothpaste simultaneously. That's imp- I'd say that's impressive. Do you not think it's a, a deeply strange thing to do? No, I think there must be some reason for it. Well, he says the reason is then he gets the, the benefits from the different types of toothpaste. I'm defending him on that. I'm demanding a sterling defence of him. Okay. So, so here's, here's the other one then, and this, um, this, this might yeah. be something that you have a stronger opinion on. She caught him the other day. You know, you're off, often you're brushing your teeth and you, you drool a bit and you get a bit of toothpaste Oof. spillage on yourself. You're, you're not unfamiliar with this. I'm sure you're a man who gets oh. toothpaste stains on himself. Right, okay, yes. So she caught Just him. Don't the other irritate d- me now. So she caught him the other day, cleaning off a toothpaste stain with his toothbrush. I think I have enough problems with my relationship with you without having some sort of infectious situation with Annabelle's partner. But are you going to start cleaning toothpaste stains off with a toothbrush, though? I'm. I'm just not. You're not engaging. You're not engaging. I'm not engaging. Should we talk about what we're going to talk about this week? Yes, we should. All right, this week. We are delving into the world of women's football. And and what better time to discuss how and why the game is becoming ever more popular with the Women's World Cup kicking off later this week in Australia and New Zealand. Off the back of the Lionesses' success in 2022 at the Women's Euros, uh, we're going to be talking to Baroness Sue Campbell, who is one of the leading figures in the development of the women's game. Honestly, we love Sue Campbell. She's not related to Alistair Campbell, in case you wondered. <laughs> Um, We'll also be exploring the history of women's football with journalist Suzanne Rack. And finally, we'll be chatting to Salon Hickman, who works for a charity called Football Beyond Borders, about how to sustain the legacy of the Lionesses and the power of women's football to tackle social and gender inequality. I'm not a sports fan, but I'm excited about this conversation. Me too. What is your reason to be cheerful? I was on a train the other day and um, there was a woman sitting across the aisle from me. We got chatting. She works on medieval literature. Oh. 8th or 10th century we're talking about here. Wow. So, so I was like... I, I would have had that down as the Dark Ages. Was it, is it not medieval then? 
I don't know. Old English. Anyway, so we sort of got chatting and about this. Um, and I was like, oh, what is it? Who, you know, what are the famous authors? Beowulf is one of the famous. But then she intrigued me and I immediately thought of you because she said that. <laughs> she, I said, oh, what's it? She, she teaches this. Her name's Rachel Burns, by the way. And she said, oh, for the first class, we tell the one about the onion and the penis. What? And I thought, oh, my goodness, this is Jeff Lloyd here. <laughs> uh, uh, this is Jeff Lloyd shaped. Uh, basically, and then I've now looked, and she said, well, Google it and you'll see what I'm talking about. Were you afraid of Googling it? I was slightly. This is Exeter book, Riddle 25. I am a wondrous creature, a joy to women, a help to neighbours. I harm none of the city dwellers except for my killer. My base is steep and high. I stand in a bed, shaggy somewhere beneath. Sometimes ventures the very beautiful daughter of a churl, a maid proud in mind, so that she grabs hold of me, rubs me to redness, ravages my head, <laughs> forces me into a fastness. Immediately she feels my meeting, the one who confines me, the curly-locked woman, wet will be that eye. Anyway, this riddle is a double entendre, which is about an onion. Wow. And apparently this was their way. And also it's very interesting and strange because they were all very monastic or maybe it's actually, maybe it's explanatory. They they did all of these sort of dirty riddles which were, you may make you think this it was sexual, but actually it wasn't. And this one was about an onion. Can I compliment your delivery there? Yeah. Apparently she says, she says that in the first class they do that one and then... The students then say, when they come to the next class, oh, we, have we got any more of this? And we're like, no, no, that, that's, that's the only one. Anyway, suggested solutions for extra book riddle 25 have included hemp, leek, onion, rosehip, mustard and phallus. But the consensus <laughs> is that the solution is onion. Uh, I'm sticking with phallus. Yeah. Next time you do the Today programme, you should take that riddle on with you. Yeah. <laughs> they start asking you a difficult question. You say, before I get into that, I want to give you a little riddle here. Um. Anyway, I think maybe I should buy you as a late birthday present the Exeter book. It's called the Exeter book, Anglo-Saxon public poetic records. Uh, what's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is it's actually a recommendation for you because I think you'll really like it and I find you increasingly difficult to recommend things. Increasingly difficult, so, yeah. Well, inc- increasingly difficult to make recommendations too because you have so many caveats these days. But I'm going to recommend to you the Wham! documentary on Netflix. Oh, that would be good for me, wouldn't it? It's it's feel good. I mean, ob- obviously you're aware of um, yeah. the fact that George Michael's yeah. not around anymore. So there's this tinge with sadness in that way, but it's, it's just really up beat, fun, it's some fun pop music, fun looking at those clothes. Were you a fan of Wham! at the time? They weren't part of the Red Wedge set, really, were they? No, I was a sort of fan-ish. But it's very good, and as I was watching it, I was thinking, I, I wonder if I'm a bit like the Andrew Ridgely of this podcast. <laughs> like, I don't think I, I, I have anything discernible to offer, but I bring something out of you. I think that's really hard on yourself and probably hard on Andrew Ridgely as well. <laughs> Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Now, to start our conversation, I am beyond excited that we have Baroness Sue Campbell, who I would say is British sporting royalty in the house. She is currently the director of women's football at the FA, but she's had a huge and varied sporting career in UK sport as a chair of UK sport. And she is an absolutely tremendous, lovely, brilliant person. Sue, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ed, after that build-up, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's extremely well-deserved. Now, I want to go all the way back to begin with, Sue, because 
Uh, you started your career as a PE teacher, and I don't think we had talked about this last time you were on. Now, some people have f- fond memories of um, PE. Jeff and I don't, but we're not going to hold it against you. <laughs> but sport has always been a central part of your life, has it? Yes, I think, I mean, I was the typical sporty kid, you know. My mother used to think I was feral, really. I was always <laughs> outside, either climbing a tree, kicking a ball, roller skating, any sport you gave me, I just loved to do. You know, in my early teens, I was England under-21 captain for netball. I was in the international athletics. I was a jack-of-all-trades, not a great master of any in particular. So all, all the way through my life, sport had been my motivation, and I went into PE teaching as much so that I could play sport every day. <laughs> and then I went to Moss Side to teach. It was very bumpy. Teachers not equipped to work with young people who had very different learning styles and different learning behaviours. I realised, for me, sport had always been an end in itself, but working with those young women, many of whom had very varied lifestyles and many challenges, I realised that if you listened well and you adapted, that you could truly change lives using sport and physical education in a way I'd never really understood. I guess it had shaped my life, but I hadn't understood you could change your life. And that mission of using sport as a vehicle to change lives, whether that's helping elite players get their dreams to come true or working in those tough areas of school and club sport where you're trying to help young people realise their potential and self-confidence, self-esteem. That, that's where my mission came from, those very tough days in Moss Side. And what do you remember about how football for girls and women was viewed in your youth and in the early part of your career, or, or was it just not? No, it wasn't. I mean, I, I played footy till I was 11. I was quite a good little player in the primary school. And then I went to secondary school and was told that girls didn't play football. And so I didn't play football. And at college, when I trained as a teacher, football was never even suggested to us. It was hockey and netball. And then in the summer, we did play cricket, cricket and athletics and tennis. So I went out completely ill-equipped to teach football and didn't teach it for that reason. Mm. So one of the jobs we've had at the FA is trying to excite secondary teachers to engage with us to teach more football and we're we're making reasonably good progress a lot more to do but we have made good progress and I, I joined the FA in 2016 working for a chief exec called Martin Glenn whose ambition was to really lift the women's game and he wanted me to come in and develop a strategy that would grow women's participation grow the fan base and make us successful on the world stage. If you think about just before you came to the FA in 2016, and you know you had a role, as, as I said at the outset, chair of UK sport, including during the Olympics, was it on your radar, women's football in the UK? What was your perspective in that period? Well, I was heading for the golf course, actually, Ed. I wasn't <laughs> heading for another job. I was at an age when the golf course was calling and, and a slightly more relaxed lifestyle. But when Martin contacted me, and asked me to think about this. And my initial reaction was no. And then if you go back to what I said at the beginning, my mission, you know, to change the lives of girls and women using sport as a vehicle. And I started to think, my goodness, the FA is such a powerful brand in sport. It has the ability to reach homes that probably don't talk very much about equal opportunities or think of their daughters in those ways. And I just got tantalised by the thought that maybe I could change a few more lives. (laughs) 
It's been an incredible privilege and a great journey, and I've got an incredible team of people around me. It's really useful to, at this point to ask, how do you assess the progress that has been made in your tenure and what is still to be done? I think we've made really good progress on every front. I would say if we're running a race, I'd say we've made a great start and we're just heading up the back straight. Right. I think there is still the top bend and the finishing straight to go. Yeah. I think we've still got a lot to do. We're now in 17,000 schools where football is now being played by girls and boys, which is terrific, both in curriculum and extracurricular. We've grown the number of women in coaching. We've grown the number of women in refereeing. We've reshaped our talent pathway so it's more diverse and reaches a very different uh, population than we have in the past. And the England team is is doing well. And the, and the next big step is the two top leagues, the Women's Super League and the Women's Championship, will become full-time professional leagues and move off into their own structure, a new company. I'm guessing the FA historically was quite male-dominated. Was it a big job getting people on board early on? I've had some really challenging jobs in sport, wonderful ones, but I've never had one tougher than this. And part of what made it so tough was the culture and the belief that men's football was king, still is, I guess, but men's football was king and there wasn't room for a queen on the throne. (laughs) And, you know, trying to establish that women's football was credible, was great to watch, could attract large fans, could attract new and different fans could be financially sustainable and also that every little girl had a right to play this sport. It's our national sport. And and just winning that, that the hearts and minds of people, we've made massive progress, but still a long, long way to go. And inside the FA, yes, I mean, I've seen a massive shift. I think one of the big decisions we took, Martin and I together, was did I want a women's division? And I said... I don't think that ever works because everybody else can say, well, that's their job over there. And I actually want to change the culture of the entire organisation. So what I want is a woman in every division of the FA. And he said, that's fairly ambitious. But I now have that. <laughs> in those days, it seemed ambitious. And, and, and that means everyone's part of the journey. You're not just a group over here doing women's football. You're integrated. So there's been a massive sea change in people's attitude. So as you think about the evolution of the game, there are obviously lessons to emulate from men's football, but there are lessons to avoid. Talk to us about how you think about that. We talk about the women's game being distinctive rather than just different. And if you watch women's football and and many men who haven't been and now go say they prefer it now to the men's game and and a lot of things they'll cite is, you know, there's no rolling about on the floor, there's no swearing at referees, there's very intense attack, attack, attack. It's a very, very fast and very athletic and very combative and competitive game to watch, so it's great to watch. But the second thing was people used to say, well, people don't want to watch it. Well, When we put on an England game now, within 24 hours, we've sold out Wembley. And that definitely happened during the Euros, where people came because it was the Euros and suddenly went, do you know what? This is really nice. This is a really family-friendly, happy... I think Gabby Logan described it as the best nightclub she'd ever been to. (laughs) When we put on a game at Wembley, all the security people say, oh, can the women's game play every week here because you're such a nice audience? And I think we are different. We are distinctive. And one of the things we've talked about is as commercial money comes in, as it becomes 
much more wealthy. How do you retain all of that wonderful player yeah. fan relationship and that environment? I guess one of the other things people worry about with the Premier League is it's become so much about money mm. and so much about what are the clubs that are the richest clubs, who can spend the most, you know, who's going to get an owner that's got endless pockets. Is the money going to the grassroots? So is there some of that that you can model in the development of the of the women's game? Yes, of course, we want more commercial income. Yes, of course, we need more resource. But let's have a look at how we make this a really wonderful example for women across the world, women's sport generally, but make this the most successful league in the world, but not just because it's got money, but because it models the very best of what we're trying to do in women's sport. Sport can be a great model for society and for life in general, and we want women's sport to be that. I think you said it at the beginning, but I think we should come back to it. You know, when you say that early experiences you had in the eye-opening was about changing lives... Just say a bit more, because you're not talking about sport, actually, are you? I mean, you are talking about sport as a mechanism, but not sport only as an end in itself. I mean, sport is either, if you're an elite player, it's the way of of living out your dreams, your greatest dreams, your greatest one moment in time that you could possibly have. And in doing that, you're modelling a behaviour, a tenacity, a work ethic that we should use with all our young people. And if you go to the other end and you're dealing with young women, as I was in Moss Side, who didn't do PE because it broke their nails, you have to start in a different place. And what I saw was, and I used dance with them, and what I saw through that was the growth of their self-esteem, their self-worth. Suddenly it was, they were turning up on time, which took a little while, but they did. Uh, They wanted to perform. Suddenly they were getting accolades of being great at something rather than being told off all the time. And I watched their lives in front of me start to take shape. None of them went on to be great sports people. And, you know, that didn't matter. They went on to be great people. And that's what mattered to me. If you go on to be a happier, healthier, more self-confident human being, then that pleases me just as much. And and that's what I learned in Moss Side. We have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy. It's a future utopia. We've decided to appoint you Minister for Sport. What would your first act be to boost and support women's football? We've got to get physical education sport right in our schools. And it isn't right, Jeff. It's, it's absolutely not right. It's declined. The school's teaching less time. Forget women's football for a minute. The health of our young people, not just their physical well-being, their mental well-being, their social growth is challenged if we don't get this sort of thing right. And we're nowhere near where we need to be. So if I was a minister, I'd probably like to be the Minister for Education rather than the Minister of Sport. And I'd want to get PE and school sport at the heart of school life. And it used well, put in the right way, delivered properly by great teachers, great coaches. It truly can change lives for the better. We've had a reshuffle and we're appointing Sue Minister for Education then. Thanks. Yeah, that would be great. Well, I know. Can I, I actually think we can do better than that, Jeff, which is I think the Jeffocracy has had its day and I want to live in the Sueocracy, <laughs> honestly. I mean, it is, I've felt this for a okay. long time that the Sueocracy would be a great place. Well, I place. knew the coup was coming. The coup is on its way. I mean, Sue Campbell, you are brilliant. I've been thinking during this interview we need something more than a baroness for Sue, and now we've got it, which is she's going to be the supreme uh, dictator (laughs) slash ruler. (laughs) Sue Campbell, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, It's a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. 
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And joining us live from Australia, we have football writer for The Guardian, author of A Woman's Game, The Rise, Fall and Rise Again of Women's Football, Susie Rack. Hello. Hi, it's good to be here. Is this very early or very late for you? It is late. It is 9pm, but not too late, so it's all right. Oh, that's, 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 that's civilised. And we're so pleased that you're able to squeeze us in because you're, you're doing three or four podcasts a week. Uh, you're, you're covering the Women's World Cup for The Guardian. How are things out there at the moment? Yeah, really good, actually. Pretty chilled around the camp, which is nice. England are staying in a hotel two miles up the road. Well, up, say up the road, up the beach from where most of the journalists right. are staying. And there's kangaroos bouncing around outside the hotel. They went to the zoo yesterday and were hugging koalas and things like that. So it's actually quite a nice vibe because the tournament hasn't kicked off yet. The calm before the storm. Let's talk a little bit about the history of women's football, which is a topic you've explored extensively in, in the book. That's sometimes interesting, the, the rise, fall and rise again. So let's talk about that first peak. Yeah, so I say not many people know about it, but I think it's increasingly known that women's football had this sort of heyday in the 1920s where during the First World War, a load of women who started to work in the factories as the men went off to fight, started to play football and formed teams and as a result of there being no men's football, started to attract phenomenally large crowds. Uh, so up Amazing. to 53,000 uh, strong crowd at Goodison Park, which is incredible, really. When would that have been, Susie? So that was in 1920. So, Amazing. you know, really early doors, yeah. Um, and there's actually evidence to suggest that there was women's football sort of being played as early as late 1800s, early 1900s in England as well, um, and may actually have been sort of stopped and clamped down on by authorities as early as that, which is is what is fascinating is, is that there's almost like numerous peaks throughout history. And the 1920s was the big one that is, is really followed. Dick Kerr ladies were a massive team who had some of the best players in the country, played hundreds of games, raised 
hundreds of thousands of pounds for charities for like their local communities, striking miners and things like that once the war was over and really active, vibrant part of the community, really well followed, really well supported and really well known. And what happened? <laughs> then the FA banned football, women's football. So this was in 1921? Yeah, no, so 1921. So it's sort of at the same time as society is shifting a little bit, right? So the men have come back from the war, women are being pushed back into the homes. The role of women is shifting generally in society. And so women playing football is less attractive to society generally. Isn't that fascinating? Mm. What were the social forces that led to this? I mean, was it controversial or was it non-controversial or...? I mean, broadly speaking, non-controversial because, like I say, society was not necessarily with women's rights at the time. It was very much sort of flowing against uh, against the tide of sort of progressive movements of women generally. So women's football was very much on the fringes. And then when it was banned, there were, you know, there was there was a bit of a, you know, fight back. There were some real fantastic male advocates that fought for it to still exist. But yeah, it was it was very much crushed. And it wasn't a sort of outright ban. It was a ban on women's football being played in any FA affiliated ground. So that meant that all of these teams are having to switch from playing in the likes of Goodison Park, selling it out to parks and rugby league grounds, which are significantly smaller. And what was the FA's justification at the time, Susie? So they, they lent heavily on like the medical reasons. So they got a load of doctors to speak to the press and say, oh, it's completely unsuitable for women to play, that it's, you know, their wombs could fall out essentially, you know, that kind of thing if they're <laughs> running around on the pitch. They're not physically built to play football. Um, and so, yeah, the, the FA, the minutes of the meeting where they banned it, says it was unsuitable for women to play. So, But that was the, the, like, the headline reason. But then there's this underlying political one too, because the FA wasn't running women's football, right? So it was being run independently of the FA. They had no control over it, and they say of it, and also no control over this money that was going into it. Uh, all the money they were taking on the doors, all this money they were first raising for charities and then started to raise for causes local to them, their mining communities and that kind of thing during strikes. And suddenly there's this sort of political, financial element going on that the FA don't like. <laughs> um, and they don't like that, A, they're not in control of it and B, that it undermines what they're doing on the men's side, which is essentially creaming off all the money. Extraordinary. And what happens then? I mean, you, because your book is titled The Rise, Fall and Rise Again. When does the rise again start and where are we now, do you think? Well, so Women's Falls banned for 50 years or just under 50 years since 49 years. But it does exist in that time in that there are, you know, real pioneers that sort of fight to keep it alive. There's this, this you know, real sort of underground pioneering movement to keep it alive. But it's not until the 70s that the FA actually lifts the ban and then we start to see a real shift. But even then, it's not until 93 that the FA take over the running of women's football from the Women's Football Association and actually start to recognise it. But even at that point, you're looking at it more being again about control rather than a commitment to the growth of women's football or anything like that. It's more like this is growing, we better keep it under control, keep it in our ranks. We're getting pressure from UEFA and FIFA to start back in women's football. We've, we better take it over. But no real commitment again from them. So it's still, you know, all very much underground. It's only really, you know, when you start to come into the, the era of the Women's Super League, which was established in 2011, that you start to see genuine serious commitment and investment from the FA whilst there's been you know clubs like Arsenal and stuff who have invested heavily or I'd say heavily heavily relatively speaking in sort of the 80s and 90s and things as well. 
And is that the point from which you can trace this sharp upwards trajectory to the uh, peak so far, I guess, of the lionesses in 2022? Or are there other things? Yeah, I mean, there's in England, certainly, if you look abroad, you look at um, in America in particular, in the 1970s when the Civil Rights Act came in and they brought in Title IX, which said that all education institutes were unable to discriminate on the basis of gender, sex, race, etc. And that meant that they had to start funding their men's and women's sports programs and scholarship programs and all of that kind of thing equally because they weren't able to discriminate on the basis of gender. So they then had to start to either cut back on their men's programs. So, you know, their men's American football teams and things like that and basketball teams or invest in women's sport to the same extent. And that meant a huge investment into women's football at college level in America. And that really changed the game. And that was like, in, like I say, in the 1970s. So that's how you sort of really get this birth of women's football in America that leads them to, you know, now be on four World Cup wins and stuff where they've got this insane player pool. Women's football is the sport for women, you know, obviously it's played, the MLS exists, but it's more of a women's sport um, at youth level, at college level. And there's a completely different attitudes towards just what what women should expect from sport as well, because, you know, they, they have legislation that says that they are deserving of this. They have a right to this level of investment in education. And we don't have that in England. We don't have that in any other place in the world, really, that says that you are entitled to play this sport and have equal access to sport as men. In England, you know, it's it's not really until sort of the, the 2000s and onwards that you're starting to get an increase in investment and a more serious uptake on uh, women's football by the FA, at that kind of governance level. Susie, how far away from where we need to be are we in the UK? So far. I mean, I just was sat on a media briefing with Karen Carney, who's just um, announcing her independent review into women's football. And it's pretty damning in that there's a real, real push for a equalising of uh, or professionalising of women's football. Women's Super League is a professional league in name really only like underlying that is some really, really low wages towards the bottom end of the league, really poor conditions across the league from top to bottom. The Women's Championship, you've got players on sort of five grand and working three jobs. That's a semi-professional league that what professionalism looks like in the regulations of women's football is not what I think any trade union would look at and say is a full-time professional job or a semi-professional job. And Rishi Sunak made this promise after the Lionesses win in 2022 in the Euros, which is some kind of equal access. Mm. Is the government doing that? What is the form of it? It's hard to say. It's going to take a little bit of time before we actually see any results of it. The commitment is there. What is exciting for me is that the players themselves, the Lionesses themselves, are making sure that those promises are are stuck to, which is the exciting part, because they are really serious about it not being empty. They they really didn't want any legacy from the Euros to be, uh, you know, them going and having a photo outside Downing Street and shaking a few hands. They wanted it to be far more meaningful than that. They really wanted to use what they had done there to inspire real change. 
Let's talk about how women's football is valued. Now, the, the, the FIFA president, is his name Gianni Infantino? Correct. Um, and I believe he's, he's not known for always being progressive, but he, he has criticised broadcasters for not paying enough for TV rights for the women's game, saying it's a slap in the face for all women worldwide. I mean, in theory, he's got a point, right? Like, you want broadcasters to be paying good money for the rights for the biggest tournament in women's football, the Women's World Cup. And some, you know, by all accounts, some of the bids for the rights were like derisory. I think um, one of the opening bids from Italy was like 300 grand. England was one of the better bids. The joint bid from ITV and BBC was believed to be around 9 million. So significant improvement on what, say, Italy were offering or Germany, but still very, very low. And it's part of that. We saw here what happens if you do give space to women's mm. football and broadcasters are more convinced of the value of it because of that. Exactly that. And But the thing is, is the problem with Infantino saying what he did and going about it in the way that he did, which was saying, oh, there's going to be a media blackout if you don't up your game and bid properly for this tournament, is that they have presided over the historic undermining of women's football and underfunding of it, right? Like they've packaged the rights in with the men. So it's always been, they sell them right for the Men's World Cup and it's been, oh, you know, for a little bit more, you can have the women's as well thrown in for free. You know, that's been that kind of deal, both from a a commercial point of view and from a broadcast point of view. It's always been packaged together. So there's never been any separate value attributed to women's football. So then FIFA have gone from switching that, for this tournament, it you know it wasn't in place at the 2019 World Cup to now separating out the rights for the tournament, both commercially and broadcast wise, and now are expecting broadcasters to stump up a whole load more money. And there's a real pushback from broadcasters because one of the issues is, is they're not saying that they can bring down the amount they're spending on the men's to and bring up the money they're spending on the women's to sort of bring them in line. They're just wanting more money on top of what they're getting for the men's. You're talking close, like around 100 million for men's rights on average around the world per major footballing country. Let's talk finally about the Lionesses' prospects this year. You're out in Australia. What's their chances of winning? What sort of boost can the, could a victory have, do you think? Chances of winning? Uh, like If you had asked me that question in February, I would have said, right, we'll winning the World Cup. Here we go. Come on, let's get ready. Then the injury started to hit in a more significant way. Leah Williamson is such a huge blow, not just because she's so important defensively, but because she's such a dynamic captain as well. Um, Then you obviously already had Beth Mead out at that point. Then Fran Kirby, who's so influential creatively and was so important during the Euros at linking up midfield and attack. I say expectations have dipped, but they could still do quite a lot. They're still an extremely good team with the best manager in the world and have a lot of confidence. But yeah, I'd say temper expectations, but still get excited. Brilliant. Well, the book, which just sounds so fascinating, is uh, A Woman's Game, The Rise, Fall and Rise Again of Women's Football. And The Guardian are keeping you busy. People can listen to the podcasts and read your reports via The Guardian. They can. Very busy. Too busy, perhaps. (laughs) I'm going to need a long holiday after this World Cup. (laughs) Thanks, Susie. Thanks, guys. And to carry on the conversation, I'm delighted to say that we are now joined by Salon Hickman, who is Head of Brand at Football Beyond Borders. Salon, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Buzzing to be here. I am buzzing too. Tell us a bit about how your interest in football began, Salon. Oh, great question. So I, I, I started playing when I was two years old, actually, which um, wow. yeah, is quite mad to think about. Wow. But um, Early. 
It was early and my, my dad was the coach kind of at my brother's primary school team. So I just started kind of joining in with them. But I also kind of had football in, I guess, in the blood kind of. My, my middle name is Andy and it's actually named after Andy King, who played for Everton and Luton Town in the 70s. He was kind of best friends with my parents. And as I was little and I started playing quite seriously and always played with boys, I got into Luton Town when I was 10 years old. But at the same time, on a Saturday, my family would be like, right, what do we do with Solana? My, my uncle Andy was, at the time, he was kind of chief scout for uh, Colchester, for Plymouth, for MK Dons. And I'd just get put in the car with him. Um, so I'd be like a 10-year-old, ginger frizzy hair, I'd go in his car and I'd like go to these kind of League One, League Two championship football matches in the scouting boxes with him. And he'd do these kind of like hieroglyphics and be like, oh, we're looking at this right back today or something. And then we'd leave the, leave the match, usually around 70 minutes, get back in the car and then he'd be on the phone to all these different managers and scouts. And wow. so I was constantly around football. And then I would go and play wow. on Sunday. He'd take me to matches and, you know, I, I played to quite a high level as a kid and then... When I was 16, the FA took the decision to close 30 girls' centres um, across the country. And that was due to a restructure, actually. And they asked us to, I think we had to raise about 150 grand to keep the centre open. I was growing up in Luton. We didn't have that uh, in, in amongst our families. So a lot of us, unfortunately, at that time were kind of forced back into either Sunday League or worse, not playing. I started playing again at uni and then I found uh, Football Beyond Borders, where um, I've been working for five years since. So football's always been in the life. And do you still play football? I do, yeah. I play for Dulwich Hamlet in South London. Um, Fantastic. At centre-back. We've got our first pre-season game this week, so wish us luck. Football season starts earlier and earlier. That's what I would say as an old person. <laughs> it does. <laughs> and, and tell us about Football Beyond Borders then. What is it? How long has it been around? Why was it set up? So we are an education charity. Um, we work with young people who are really passionate about football, but they're disengaged in their education. And we support them to get both the skills, the social emotional skills and their grades, their GCSEs in English and maths, in order to make a successful transition to adulthood. So we know that football is a really powerful thing. It allows you to build incredible relationships. It gets the best out of you. It's a great space for learning and demonstrating different emotions and learning from those emotions. So we use football as part of our methodology and we start working with young people when they are 12 in year eight and we support them all the way up to year 11. We've been around for it'll be our 10th year in 2024. So we're coming up to our 10 year anniversary. We started very much in South London, but we're now across London, Birmingham uh, and Manchester and a bit of Liverpool as well. You know, we see a lot of need in, in our schools at the moment for additional support. And football is a way that you can kind of get into a young person's life who may have been disengaged in other areas of their lives in school or whatever. So starting with that passion and starting with that hook is a really, really important part of what we do. And FBB started with boys programmes and then it branched out into girls programmes, yeah? It did. That was my brief, Ed. So I um, I came in in 2018 um, and I was told by by Jack, our chief exec and co-founder, and Jasper, who was our, our chief exec co-founder at the time. They said, we've always tried to work with girls, but we haven't been able to do it yet. Can you help us do it? So that was my brief. And I, the first thing I did was get on a FaceTime with five year 11 girls um, who had had FBB in their school for five years. And I said to them, what have you seen? What do you love? What do you want from a program? And that sort of thing. And then myself and my colleague, Deborah, we worked um, in that year to kind of design and deliver the girls program at a loss to the organization. And we did three programs, one in Croydon, one in Peckham and one in Brixton. 
And we wanted to build the case for investment, wanted to show people that this really, really does work and girls need this just as much as boys. So we start with those three programs and we've, we're at 42 programs across London, Manchester and Birmingham five years on, which is um, a wonderful thing to, to sit and look upon as we enter into a, a, a big summer for women's football. And did you notice the differences between what girls needed in terms of support and what boys needed, why they were struggling in the school environment? Yeah, definitely. And there's a lot of research that backs this up. So I'm going to talk in maybe like generalized terms at the minute, but we work with a lot of young people who have experienced trauma or have gone through adverse childhood experiences. And unfortunately that number is growing and we're seeing so much more of it um, in our schools. But what happens, I think, in terms of the gendered world that we grow up in is that boys have a different response to that trauma and to, to what girls do. So on the whole, again, caveat, we're speaking broadly here, boys will tend to manifest that trauma like outwardly. So they will externalize their response to the trauma. So when they are triggered or their cup is too full, they might um, stand up and flip a chair or tell a teacher to F off or get into a fight or something like that. Girls much more likely to internalize that trauma, manifest itself in really low self-esteem, manifest itself in kind of hating themselves and therefore hating their peers and how their peers make them feel. So really fragile peer relationships, self-harm, eating disorders, negative online behavior, more risk-taking, sexualized behavior, that sort of thing. What actually happens and what I learned really early on in schools is that sometimes girls can slip through the net in the eyes of a kind of school behavior team or a head teacher because they're like, oh, they don't present it like that. We don't know much about it. And it will come out later and they will uh, might get excluded from school or they might... Um, they might exclude themselves from school and, and stop attending and that sort of thing. And that is where the program is kind of different and tailored towards those different manifestations of the challenges that they've been through. And you released a report a few months ago, I think, about the impact of the Lionesses at the Euros in 2022 and sustaining their legacy for teenagers. What, what, what did your research show? So we'd had this amazing summer and I particularly had had probably one of the summers of my life. I've got the tattoo to prove it on the arm. It was probably one of the most joyous moments that I've ever had standing at Wembley as we, we finally brought it home. But I went back into schools in September and a lot of our team did. And we just had this hunch that for the girls that we were working with, largely inner city girls of colour from working class families, that feeling, it hadn't translated and it sort of passed them by. And we wanted to look into that. So we commissioned our research arm, Youth Beyond Borders, to, to really do a deep dive into that and to, to work out what was going on. And I think whilst there's been huge masses of progress in the last kind of, you know, 10, 15 years from the FA, from big brands like Nike, from different funders, like people are doing some incredible work and we're all trying to solve this problem. What we found is that Probably a societal thing is that some of the most marginalized people in our society in lots of different societal structures, health, education, criminal justice system, all these things were also being left behind in women's football. And that's not necessarily a surprise. So we found that those girls, 63% of our teenage girls at the time couldn't name a lioness in March, 2023, after what had happened the summer previously. And for me, there was a, a disconnect with what we were seeing at like kind of yeah, in our adult world and our adult lenses and where we get our news and our mainstream media, whether we're seeing lionesses on the Graham Norton show or presenting Brit Awards, that isn't what 12, 13, 14 year old girls are consuming every day. So it, it had kind of missed them. And that was really, really important for us to kind of document that experience 
and also ask what can we do with the girls to ensure that we we are changing that. What are some of the ideas around that? Well, the report, we looked at three kind of recommendations. One is that we have to centre girls' voices and hero women's football culture. Number two is how do you hijack men's football culture? Men's football culture is everywhere. Teenage boys are growing up in a world where they'll play FIFA, they'll listen to their favourite rappers, rap about their favourite footballers, they will look at their fashion brands and there will be their footballers wearing those things. It's all consuming for, for boys in men's football. How do we hijack those spaces by putting women in there as much as we can? There's some really, really wicked things that you can do in terms of your creative storytelling around, around football. And then finally, in broader culture, in fashion, in music, where can you put women's football in that space? And there's some great examples of that coming out as well. I think Nike just did an amazing campaign with Leah Williamson and Nike Women in Paris and loads of fashion designers. You bring the world of women's football, which has traditionally been quite far away, into the life of a teenage girl and build that relatability in it. When you talk to the girls, what is the issues they encounter in getting involved in football at school? You know, why might it be difficult? There are so many and it's such a layered problem. Everyone can like go back to school and think about when you're at school and think of that one PE teacher who went out of their way. If that PE teacher doesn't exist or if that PE teacher did exist and then leaves, that resourcing completely disappears because until, well... Who knows if the government will deliver on it, but until we had that commitment for equal school sport, girls are doing netball, dance, hockey, boys are doing football, rugby, cricket. That's the kind of structural number one. Then there are so many different things. So, for example, we have um, an incredible girl on our programs in a school in Lancashire. She is a 13 year old who wears the hijab, loves football, absolutely obsessed with football. Her school PE policy was that she, you couldn't wear the hijab in PE because of the pins and the safety pins for health and safety reasons. She realized this and was like, what's going on? This is stopping me from like playing football and playing football as comfortable as I feel it. And she said, I want to change this. And she was like, I want to lead a petition. So she gets a petition going. She gets like hundreds of signatures from the year group. She brings it to the head teacher. The head teacher says, amazing. And she's like, oh, we want to present to you in a senior leadership team meeting the, the importance of the hijab and why we need to wear it and you know why we think this policy needs to change. She does that. The head teacher was amazing. Was like, of course, let's change this. It was a complete blind spot. Changes the policy. Now she can play. But that was a process that took three, four months and a 12, 13 year old to realise that and to then do that. Where else is that happening in our schools that we aren't aware of? And it isn't something that comes into men's football that, that often schools and, and sporting opportunities have been designed around. So they don't necessarily think about it. And what are you hoping for, Salon, from, as a legacy of the Lionesses at the Women's World Cup, which is taking place this summer? Hoping that we win the tournament first. I think we've got to, we've got to bring, win our first World Cup. That's what I'd absolutely love yeah, I'm very excited to be in Sydney for that for that moment because what that does and I think what it did with the Euros is like it unleashes a whole new potential for women's football which then trickles down into what girls can see, what they can access, you know, the, almost the impetus from different adults in their lives to take more interest in women's football and I think that is completely transformative for women and girls. And I think the Euros has started us on that journey. It pushes misogyny to the fringes of society. When I get in a, in a cab now and say, oh, I work in football, I play football, you are no longer met with, oh, I don't really like goalkeepers in women's football or, oh, you know, I don't think women should play football. I think it's just a bit rubbish. You're now met with, well, the Lionesses did a great job, didn't they, bringing it home? That's that's the societal stuff that's really, really important and really difficult to measure. 
what also I'm hoping for is that programs like FBB get the support and infrastructure and, and kind of investment that we need to keep doing the work that we're doing with those groups that may not be as naturally engaged as others. So hoping we hit our fundraising campaign target by the end of the tournament. I'm hoping that our girls watch the tournament. I'm hoping that our schools are all providing spaces for our girls to watch it as well. Um, and that there's just a genuine excitement and new generation of fans coming through. Well, look, Solana Hickman, it's been really inspiring to talk to you. Fingers crossed for the Lionesses this summer and enjoy Sydney. Thank you so much. Can't wait. Well, that was great fun. Such an important subject. I enjoyed it so much. A bit of history, lots of optimism, stories of an actual difference that Solana is seeing in the schools she worked in. I was quite struck by the fact that the US has been such a big driver of women's football because men aren't interested in it over there. So there's no kind of ownership and male obsession with it. And something has flourished yeah. without that. I've got a friend who plays for the London City Lionesses who's, who's played for like England under 19s and, and 17s. And she went over to the States. You know, the way that she advanced her career was going and playing college football, I think, in Virginia. You're completely right about the US, and I've been quite obsessed with Title IX for a long time. And the impact, it's just amazing, the impact that it's, it's had. I mean, it's just had a, and I guess in America, the main sports were baseball, basketball, American football, and perhaps ice hockey, and they were the sort of the national sports. But but I think it's, you know, it shows what a legal change can do. Mm. And that legal change, which I think was made in the 70s, had profound effects, mm. including right up to the professional level, obviously. I was quite struck by what Sue was saying there yeah. about how different it is to go to a women's football match really as well. Interesting. Because, you know, there, there are cultural problems that um, men's football has been struggling with for yeah. years around alcohol and yeah. crowd behaviour yeah. and racism and homophobia. There's something, I think, really encouraging, something to be optimistic about, the fact that when a sport feels more of a blank piece of paper. In other words, it hasn't got all the historical baggage. That isn't present, or at least not to the same degree. And also there is something in this blank piece of paper thing, isn't there, about how you create a women's game Mm. that doesn't necessarily emulate some of the problems of the men's game, the way money works. It sounds like Sue and others are are really quite focused on that. I think the other thing that it shows you is that doesn't it tell you something that... You know, when we think of modern society, we think of a commitment to equal rights. But there are so many areas where that's still really a work in progress. Well, I think the only way to end on the brink of the World Cup is with a come on lionesses. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So if you've got thoughts on what you've heard on today's episode about women's football or ideas for future episodes, we'd love to hear from you at cheerfulpodcast.com. You can find us, you can email. We love praise, don't we, Jeff? Yes, we love being validated. I mean, you love praise but don't like to read it out, whereas I love the praise and love to read it out. Yes, I think that illustrates a fundamental difference between us. Which is what? It's something to do with your extroversion and um, how you like to be in the world, yeah. Neediness. I've got a lot Um, of neediness, but... um, uh, You keep it it under your hat. Right, um, this is from Laura Duncan. She emailed us uh, on the subject of children's and citizens' assemblies. Hello, she says. We recently were interested to take part in a discussion as the precursor to our city's citizen assembly on climate. During the discussion, we were told that children would not be invited to join the citizens' assembly because they are too vulnerable. 
A more nuanced position seemed to be in place for vulnerable adults. I wondered whether a citizens' assembly, particularly on climate, can be fully effective or representative without finding a way to routinely include children. I discussed this with a group of 8 to 12-year-olds in a history group I run. They came up with some very good reasons why children should be included and why they would have liked to have been welcomed as part of it. It is a citizens' assembly rather than a voters' assembly, so shouldn't we find a way to make it work, either with children in the adult citizen assembly or junior citizens' assembly as standard? And this feels like a very much a runciman. If I can talk about a runciman for a moment... This feels very much up his street. And I think that's a good point here, don't you? Yeah, I really like the idea of a, a junior citizens' assembly. My son would be desperate to be on that, I think. Yeah, and he soon will be in the age group. Yeah. This comes from Bruno, Bruno Villena, who says, I live in the beautiful Aveiro region of Portugal, which is kind of the cycling capital of Portugal. But I've never heard about Eurovelo until your last episode about cycling. Well, as I was doing my Sunday afternoon walk near the beach I usually go to, I saw a Eurovelo 1 sticker on a traffic sign and instantly remembered the episode. It happens that the EV1 Atlantic Coast Route roams through my municipality and I didn't even know about it. Wow! Yeah, another week. Is this the third week in which our episode has directly inspired some kind of action? We're on a roll. We are. He says, I've always had the idea of cycling through the Portuguese coast and uh, maybe this may have been the trigger for me to start planning it. And if you ever visit Aveiro, cycling or not, I will be very happy to be your local guide or just take a selfie with Ed, given that he likes them a lot. Well, I think you must be close to having had a, a selfie with pretty much everybody in the UK who wants one. So <laughs> maybe you should broaden your horizons. And, and some who don't yeah. want one. I mean, I love that idea. Uh, honestly, I'm really taken with the whole Eurovelo thing. Now, this one comes from Alice Harpole. Suggestion for an episode, TTRPGs. Oh, something, something role-playing games. Mm, correct. Hi, Ed and Jeff. I'm a long-time listener of the podcast and really appreciate all the new topics and insights you've introduced me to over the years. Alice gets the idea. I always look forward to new episodes and love how they're always so informative but optimistic. Alice gets the idea, uh, which I'm sure is a difficult balance to achieve. Oh, jeez. Thanks, Alice. That's the, that's a, the un, a, we feel that's the unseen work that we do and, and Alice really sees us. What a great email. Yeah. I want to suggest an idea for an episode. Tabletop role-playing games or TTRPGs. I'm sure many of your listeners have heard of games such as Dungeons and Dragons, but I suspect few are aware of how popular they are these days within the LGBTQ plus community as a safe space to explore gender and queer identity. TTRPGs are also becoming popular among therapists as a way for people to safely explore and learn how to deal with trauma. I was among one of the many people who discovered D&D over the pandemic, where meeting regularly with a group of people from across the world online helped me escape the stressful, lonely real world for a while and instead adventure in an exciting fantasy one. There's so much more to TTRPGs than just rolling dice, and I think it would be a great topic to explore how beneficial they are to so many people's lives. That's so interesting. I've, I've not really so thought about that. I like anything that, that brings people together digitally who might not have found each other otherwise. You know, we, we talk a lot about the dystopia of the internet, and I, I love stories like that. But um, that, that world, I used to play a bit of Dungeons & Dragons when I was 11 or 12, but it's not, not something I ever went back to, but it's, it's very intriguing. I'm intrigued. Mm. I'm intrigued. Great email. Keep them coming. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Whoa, ho, ho, we're in the outro, ho, ho. Now, I have 
a piece of very interesting intelligence to report to you about Wordle. Oh. And I am grateful to my sons for having discovered this. So our opening word in Wordle is always irate. Mm. Remarkably, about a week ago, irate was the word. That's wonderful. So we got it in one. But that isn't the interesting part of this story. Moderately interesting. But this is more interesting. There is a new thing on Wordle. They've really even improved the kind of app, the kind of information they can give you about what other people are doing. And one of the things it tells you is what word people guess on each turn. Okay. So one of my kids was then looking back on the day that we got irate and said, oh, isn't it amazing? 2% of people guessed irate. Yeah. So that suggests that 2% of people do what you do and, and always use it as their opening well, word. Well, hang oh. on a minute. Because then he looked back at all of the previous uh, wordles and only 1.5% of people guessed irate. Aha, uh-huh, so... So 2% two, <laughs> so guessed it on the day it was the word and one5 on all the other days previously. Now it's declined because it is the word. So, so One in 200 people are cheating at Wordle. Is that not the correct conclusion? Because half a percent of people guessed irate on the first turn who don't normally guess irate and it happened to be the day that it was the word. Oh, I heard that and I thought, well, that that quarter of those people, that quarter of those 2%, yeah. maybe they were just feeling irate that day and they just used the wordle boxes as a way of uh, expressing their emotions. I mean, don't, I, do, there's no other logical explanation for it, is there? Actually, because that 1.5% would include people who are like me and just start with a different word every time, wouldn't it? One in 200 seemed to me to be quite a lot of people who were cheating. But then one of my kids said that they didn't think it was very many. So so 0.5% of people are, yeah. are terrible yeah. cheats. Yeah, or, or were on that day. Yeah, but walk a mile in their shoes, Ad. You don't know what circumstances led them to become wordle cheats. OK, Have, have a bit of empathy for these people. But don't you think it's good detective work? Yes, yeah. Well done on passing your data nerdism on to the next generation. Exactly. Shall we thank our guests? Yes. I'd like to thank Baroness Sue Campbell, Susie Rack and Selon Hickman. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer. Ably supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made the eye dance and the artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.